You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're talking about current events and eschatology a bit. A few months ago, my uh, former roommate, the best man at my wedding, also uh, messaged me and said, uh, look up September 23rd, 2017, and prepare yourself. And he didn't mean to get ready with some excitement. This is going to be something that you're going to be uh, face-palming over, pretty much. And yeah, I was. Because I've uh, I- I've never been impressed with people trying to guess when the end is going to come. We always saw this happen with the Four Blood Moons thing, where absolutely nothing happened. But seeing as this was supposed to be based on astronomical science, because the prediction was on Rosh Hashanah, the rapture was going to take place. And that's going to be this year, September 23rd, 2017. And since it involved astronomical signs, I thought, I don't know much about astronomy, but I know who does. So I sent an email to my friends at Reasons to Believe, saying, hey, can you all give me the lowdown on this kind of thing and such? Well, I got a lot more than I bargained for, because today my guest is going to be talking to us about these signs. And my guest is, in fact, Dr. Hugh Ross, who is in charge of Reasons to Believe. He is the, an astronomer and best-selling author. He travels the globe speaking on the compatibility of advancing scientific discoveries for the timeless truths of Christianity. His organization, Reasons to Believe, is dedicated to demonstrating via a variety of resources and events that science and biblical faith are allies, not enemies. Dr. Ross, always great to have you on the show. Welcome back. Oh, my pleasure. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. I was born, raised, and educated in Canada. Uh, I got a PhD in astronomy from the University of Toronto and uh, went to Caltech to do postdoctoral research on uh, quasars and galaxies, particularly the more distant quasars and galaxies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I became a Christian at, uh, at age 19 after spending two years uh, researching the different holy books of the religions of the world. Uh, but I was not really able to get to know Christians until I got to Caltech. They're hard to find in Canada, but they're everywhere here in the United States. And as well as at Caltech, I got involved in a church uh, located between the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and Caltech. We're also next to the Skeptic Society headquarters and Fuller Seminary, so it's a rather interesting place. And uh, they wound up putting me on their uh, pastoral team, and I've been on that team for the past four decades. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that helped me launch Reasons to Believe uh, 32 years ago. And the Reasons to Believe is uh, a cadre of research scientists uh, who are evangelical Christians. And uh, we survey the frontiers of scientific research to develop new evidences 
uh, for the Christian faith and the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So we publish books, uh, we do DVDs, we've done debates, uh, we've done uh, TV programming, radio programming, interviews, and uh, we speak in universities and colleges and business firms and churches literally around the world. And you do have some non-scientists over there as well. I mean, we've interviewed Ken Sampos on the program, and he said, yeah, I sit on the scientific discussions, and I go home, and I don't understand a word of it. <laughs> well, sometimes he does. I mean, if it gets into quantum physics, he's a little bit lost. Mm. Uh, we're talking the uh, origin and uh, history of life. I think he's right with us. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're right with him on the theological and philosophical issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so our team isn't just research scientists. We also have some theologians, uh, sociologists, and uh, philosophers. Because uh, our whole goal is to integrate across all the disciplines of knowledge to develop new reasons to believe in uh, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And uh, our website, uh, reasons.org, has got over 10,000 articles on it. Mm -hmm. And now, if I'm remembering correctly for this uh conversation topic we've got today. I think I read years ago that you, in fact, are a futurist and a dispensationalist as well. Is that correct? Well, I am a premillennial uh, Christian, mm -hmm. and uh, not all the scholars have reasons to believe are premillennialists, but yep. most of us are. Uh, but as you know, within the premillennial uh, spectrum, there's quite a wide uh, range of uh, positions. I would not describe myself as a, a strict dispensationalist. I do mm -hmm. accept some of their ideas, but mm -hmm. a lot that I don't. Okay. I, I want to get that out there because people who listen to the show know that my position is out of orthodox preterism. And so I want to say, yeah, I'm not stacking the deck here, but we're talking about this event. And in show prep, I did ask you if this was the first time you'd heard about it. And it turns out it's far from a first time, isn't it? It is. I mean, uh, probably uh, starting about two months ago, I began getting questions about this particular theory on my Facebook page, and people can go there and see the brief answers that I've given. But I do appreciate this opportunity you're giving me to give more than just a brief answer. Okay. Now, I don't understand a whole lot of this terminology, so where I'm incorrect in presenting the position, you can tell me about it. But apparently the whole idea is that on September 23rd of this year, the sun will be in the constellation of Virgo, and that somehow that means the moon is going to be at Virgo's feet there, as where Jupiter is supposed to be in the womb of Virgo, and the planets Venus, Mars, Mercury are up into the light of Virgo in Leo. And some are saying this... In, this is claimed that this is something that's happened only once in 7,000 years. I mean, how, how is that at the start? Well, this is not the first time that's been claimed. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've dealt with over 30 of these claims uh, throughout my Christian life. Mm -hmm. And uh, they always involve some kind of a numerology. I mean, as I look at this, they're saying, well, 12 stars. Uh, but as you actually look at it, it's really nine stars in Leo, Mm -hmm. and three of the planets. So that's how they come up with a 12. And at the 12, they get out of uh, a chapter in Revelation uh, where there's a vision of the sun, moon, and 12 stars. Right. Um, but what concerns me about a lot of these uh, uh, gymnastics with uh, mm -hmm. signs in the heavens is that people don't integrate across the 66 books of the Bible 
in terms of uh, end times teaching. Right. You know, it's not just the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. To give you some background, it was 30 years ago that the church where I serve in the pastoral staff asked me if I would teach a class on the book of Revelation. And I said, I'll do it on one condition. I believe that Revelation is the capstone to all the Old Testament uh, prophetic books. So I says, if we're going to do this justice, we can't just study Revelation. We're going to have to study virtually the entirety of Ezekiel, uh, all of Zechariah and Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, the Minor Prophets. Uh, That class uh, took seven years and nine months to complete because we wound up studying about 40% of the Bible. You know, literally Mm -hmm. literally one-third of the Bible is relevant to the subject of eschatology. Mm -hmm. And when you integrate across the 66 books of the Bible in terms of developing a consistent uh, Mm end-times perspective, what you discover, for example, is that Revelation is not the only place uh, that speaks about uh, the sun, moon, and stars. Mm-hmm. It's so way back in the book of Genesis. Right. Genesis 37, Joseph has a vision where 11 stars uh, bow down to him and the sun and the moon. And if you read a couple of verses further, you see that uh, Jacob, his father, interprets that, oh, uh, the sun refers to me, the moon refers to your mother, uh, the 11 stars are your brothers, you're the 12th star. And so as I look at that text in Revelation, I think it's referring to the people of uh, Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, then all these weird signs in uh, Leo and Virgo, etc. And reason why I call is numerology, as an astronomer, uh, you can look at the heavens, uh, the constellations, and you can make it say virtually anything you want, anytime you want. Mm-hmm. And prove that is, this isn't the first time this kind of claim has been made. Literally, I've dealt with over 30 of them in the past 40 years, and they're all involved in taking a passage of Scripture, looking up at the constellations and the movement of the planets, and force-fitting something into that particular context. And frankly, I see this as simply one more example of that. Mm-hmm. Now, I do think historically, though, that there has been symbolism that has been seen before that, I think, uh, Saturn was supposed to be a planet representing Israel, and Jupiter was supposed to be a kingly planet and such. But I take it you're skeptical that God's trying to communicate a message to us that way. Yes, there's a warning in the Bible against putting your faith in astrology. Mm -hmm. It's also a warning against numerology. And yeah, this strikes me as a combination of astrology and numerology, Mm -hmm. which is something that we're to avoid. And hey, if you want to know what the Bible is saying about the end times, you don't have to look at the constellations or the movement of the planets. Mm-hmm. You simply have to read the 66 books of Scripture. And what you discover, for example, is that the primary claim that's being made that you know September uh, 23rd is going to be a major event uh, this year, and uh, with events following the next two months, If you look at the book of Ezekiel, you see some direct contradictions from a premillennial perspective. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, you know, not everybody had reasons to believe it's premillennial, but clearly the people who wrote this piece are. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they're pre-tribulation premillennialists. And just to be clear, I'm not a pre-tribulation premillennialist. I believe that the timing is later, Mm -hmm. uh, the rapture of the church. 
but what you see in Ezekiel 32 through to 39 is that uh, the week of Daniel cannot begin until all the Jews of the world are living in the land of Israel, uh, where Israel is at peace, uh, where Israel now is the richest nation of the planet on a per capita basis, and where they sign a strong treaty uh, with a confederation of uh, ten nations. None of those events have happened yet. And since none of those events have happened, I tell people, look, uh, what's phenomenal is that today half the Jews of the world are living in the land of Israel. Uh, so we're moving forward to that prophecy in the book of Ezekiel. And moreover, in terms of its wealth, what's remarkable is that the uh, nation of Israel ranks second in NASDAQ companies. The United States is first, but here's this nation with just 7 million Jews in it, and it ranks second in the world in terms of NASDAQ companies. Mm -hmm. I think we're on the way to seeing that prophecy fulfilled, but it's not going to be fulfilled by September 23rd. So what you're also saying is that someone from my, my perspective, like an orthodox preterist, for instance, could say, look, you know, even if I grant you your premillennialism just for the sake of argument, this right. doesn't even fit within your own system. That's correct. But, you know, I can hear him saying, but look, Dr. Ross, this happens once... This hasn't happened in 7,000 years. Doesn't that guy account for something? Well, it's an abuse of statistics. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the sense that, yeah, they come up with something that's really improbable, highly improbable with the constraints they put upon it. But those constraints are ones that they've developed. It's not something that comes from the biblical text. Mm -hmm. So it kind of reminds me of these Bible codes. I don't know if you were around... Oh, uh, yes. Five, ten years ago, people mm -hmm. were coming up with these uh, numerical ways of sorting through uh, the letters of uh, Scripture and coming up with these amazing uh, predictions. Mm -hmm. First of all, they weren't predictions, they were postdictions. They were basically going through the text, uh, you know, with a, a kind of a number jump system, looking at every ninth number, eleventh number, twelfth number. Um, and statistically, if you're willing to play with the jump sequence, you can make the text say anything you want. Mm -hmm. An example of that is one of our astronomers took the Gettysburg Address and uh, came up with a number jump system that was far more impressive than what these people came up with using the entire book of Genesis. Mm. His point is you could use the phone book, you could use the dictionary, you could use any uh, text that's sufficiently long. And if you're willing to vary the number jump system, you can make it say anything you want, which means the statistical significance of what is claimed by these people pushing the September 23rd date uh, is meaningless. Mm -hmm. There is no statistical significance to it. But, I mean, is it true that this has only occurred in 7,000 years, or is that just also misreading the data? Well, if you're willing to play with the, uh, the stars and the... Um, uh, planets, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you can come up with something uh, that if, it, if it's highly specified as this one is, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that can have a very uh, low probability. Yeah. On the other yeah. hand, I think they would have been just as excited if it was eight stars and four planets, mm -hmm. ten stars and two planets. So once you begin to loosen up on those uh, those numbers, you're going to find something that looks very improbable, but it really isn't because 
you are the ones that chose uh, the parameters. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking that if we go out at any time at night, and you can tell if I'm wrong with this, but if we were able to look and see the layout of the stars and such, most any night we could say, it's probably not going to be like that again for a long, long, long time. Well, that's right. If you're talking about uh, the movements of the planets relative to the stars, mm -hmm. if you specify the movement and the positions to a high enough degree, mm -hmm. yeah, you're going to come up with something that's extremely improbable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll give you another example. Uh, a lot of the claims in the past were the planets are lining up. Yeah. And when the yeah. planets line up, you're going to get uh, a gravitational uh, conjunction. You know, all the planets will tug together, and that's going to have uh, catastrophic effects on our solar system and on our Earth. And, uh, you know, as an astronomer, I say, well, let's actually calculate the gravitational influence of a particular lineup of planets. Mm -hmm. And uh, what you discover in terms, I mean, this is the whole, whole basis of astrology, that the positions of the planets at the time of your birth determine the future of your life. And mm -hmm. they're claiming that these gravitational tugs lining up in a particular way affect your future. The truth is the gravitational pull you hear, feel from your father and the obstetrician at the time of your birth is orders of magnitude greater than any possible lineup of planets. So you really should be looking where the father is in the operating room or the mm -hmm. birth room um, and other individuals and where the furniture is because that has a much bigger effect. And keep in mind that the planets line up oh, probably uh, about 10 times per century. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, these things do keep happening. And likewise, uh, phenomena like these stars and planets and Virgo and Leo, that keeps happening all the time. And I would also question the identification as Vir Virgo as the virgin and Leo as the lion. Mm -hmm. Where that come from? It came from pagan astrology. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come from Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so we're basically appealing to uh, pagan uh, you know, mythology and astrology to try to interpret what the Bible is saying about particular events, when I would argue that the Bible all by itself gives you uh, plenty of information. You don't have to go to the stars. You know, I'm remembering that uh, used to be when I lived with my parents, my dad and I would drive around, we'd listen to oldies from the 50s and 60s and sometimes 70s on radio, and you talk about the lining up, I can't remember that song about this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Is that the same kind of thing you were talking about? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, back in the 60s, there was a big deal about the fact that, uh, you know, the, uh, the spring equinox position was moving uh, from uh, Pisces into Aquarius. Mm -hmm. The truth is the error bar and that's plus or minus 100 years. So who knows whether we actually are. Mm -hmm. Well, we're not quite in the age of Aquarius if you actually look at the border of a Pisces as astronomers have defined it. Mm -hmm. uh, but those borders have changed uh, over the while. So there are astrologers that are claiming, yeah, we really are in the age of Aquarius. But hey, it all depends what map you use. Yeah. Now, you said that we're not supposed to use pagan astrology and such. Yeah, I can picture someone out there giving a push and saying, hey, wait, wait, wait. Go to Matthew 2, and the wise men were guided by a star from the east, and quite likely these were pagans using their astronomy to find Messiah. So, I mean, if God could do that for them, maybe he's doing the same for us. Well, 
I've spoken on that topic quite frequently, and you'll actually see some articles on our website that I've written mm-hmm. on Bethlehem Star. And, uh, you know, they're called Wise Men. Mm-hmm. Well, who was the greatest of the wise men? It was Daniel, Gidnezer's mm-hmm. uh, court. And uh, it was Daniel in chapter 9 of his book where he actually prophesies the timing of the coming of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is these wise men from the east, they knew the approximate time based on the prophecy in the book of Daniel. And so they began to closely study the sky uh, to see if there might be some sign. Because if you actually look at what it says in Daniel 9, it says the Messiah will come after a certain number of years after the signing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. A little bit of ambiguity because history tells us there were three separate decrees that were signed uh, by the Persian king. Mm-hmm. Now, they're only spaced by about 10 years, but that gives you about a you know, plus or minus five-year window in which you know that the Messiah is going to come. And uh, they saw this sign in the sky, and they went to Jerusalem. The text is very clear, however, the star did not guide them to the location. It simply helped them realize, hey, this is the time. And hey, even if they're wrong, uh, they would have known based on Daniel, well, we might have been off by a year, but let's just hang around Jerusalem and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So uh, they had some confidence totally independent of the sign in the sky. And uh, Note, too, that the sign they saw was subtle enough that apparently they were the only ones that noticed. Mm-hmm. So there is a record in the Korean astronomical annals that indicates that they saw a guest star at the same time that uh, mm-hmm. the wise men left uh, uh, the east to go to Jerusalem. Interesting. And, uh, well, what's interesting, a lot of people have speculated that it's some kind of conjunction of planets kind of similar to what these people are looking at. Like Jupiter and Saturn, for instance. Like Jupiter and Saturn and Venus. And uh, with respect to the Christmas star, it tells us it's a single star. It's Mm. not two or three stars. It's one star. And that single star reappears about a year to a year and a half after. So the star appeared in the east. It disappeared. It was out of sight for a year to a year and a half. And then it reappeared. And it reappeared as the wise men were on the way uh, to Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. And this, it was the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem that told them it would be Bethlehem. Uh, what's interesting is that the uh, Jewish religious leaders knew the location based on the prophecy of Micah, but it was the wise men that knew the timing based on the prophecy in the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reappearance of the star simply uh, encouraged the wise men that they were on the right track. It did not bring them to the house uh, where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus dwelt. There'd be no need. Bethlehem was a small village. It would have been straightforward for them to find the one home where there was uh, a husband and a wife and one firstborn son uh, that was uh, less than two years of age.
We're, we're uh, talking today with uh, Dr. Hugh Ross on uh, September 23rd, 2017. Should Christians be looking out for anything and such? But if you're here next week, I'm not sure how many of you may have noticed this in all your years of growing up, things like this, but uh, men and women are actually pretty different. You know, that, that's, that, that's, that's a shock to much of our culture today, but for many of us who are Christians, it's, yeah, we know that. What makes us so different? Well, next week, I'm going to have uh, Dr. Sam Andretis on the show talking about his book, Engendered, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. One of the best books I've read on this topic. He's going to be here next week to talk about that. But now, let's get back to Dr. Ross talking about this. Now, one thing you talked about also was that they, the wise men were the only ones who saw this. And I remember when the whole blood moons thing was going on, People have this idea that you'd be able to see a blood moon from everywhere in the world. And considering that we're on a globe, that's kind of impossible. I mean, one of these blood moons, I understood, could have only been seen in, say, the Antarctic region, for instance. So, even if this alignment occurs, it's not going to be visible for everyone, is it? Well, the blood moon thing, you can see a blood moon over about one-third of the planet's surface. Right. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, when they did that movie on the four blood moons, uh, I was impressed that uh, uh, Hagee actually invited me to provide a critique. Mm -hmm. I made the point, well, uh, you know, the blood moon you're referring to is not visible in Israel. It's mm -hmm. visible in the U.S., but not in Israel. Uh, doesn't that cause a problem for your interpretation? But it's similar to this thing in that the blood moons are just too common. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you get a minimum of, uh, you know, two a year. And uh, as far as the tetrads go, well, you get, uh, I think, in the 21st century, eight separate tetrads. Mm -hmm. That's much too common. And likewise, uh, planets moving into the constellation Leo and Virgo, that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that they found this, quote, coincidence I don't think it's that big of a coincidence because these kinds of things happen really frequently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it still, just like, would be like the blood moon's things, like one third of the Earth only would be able to see this at a time. I mean, what about people down under, like in Australia and such? Would they be able to see this? Or? Well, uh, the constellation Virgo and Leo is visible for most people. Mm -hmm. Um Leo would be a stretch if you were on, in Antarctica, for example, because that's far enough north that it would be difficult to see. Um, you know, Virgo being relatively close uh, to the celestial equator, you can see it over most of the planet. Mm -hmm. Now, there's also some people are trying to connect this with eclipses that are going on, about how these eclipses seem to be happening at just for right time. I, I'm, I'm sure you understand a whole lot more about that than I do. Well, I remember critiquing that with the four blood moons, where they were just saying, hey, you know, uh, this is happening on Jewish holidays. Mm -hmm. And it says, well, the Jewish holidays are tied to the position of the moon, so it's not that impressive that you're getting an eclipse on a Jewish holiday. Mm -hmm. um, you know, given that they're locking into a new moon, uh, that's inevitable. Mm -hmm. So, uh, not at all, it's statistically not impressive at all. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this stuff is simply exposing the fact that uh, the population here in the United States uh, really is not that well educated on astronomy. 
Right. They're easily persuaded. This is really a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know what I tell people? If you got any concerns about this, talk to your friendly neighborhood astronomer, <laughs> and uh, he'll give you the uh, real dope on what's going on here. I mean, notice that you don't get astronomers, uh, well, you know, sucked into these claims. Mm-hmm. That'd be one thing if uh, you had, say, over half the world's astronomers saying, "Hey, this is significant." But the mm-hmm. fact is, I don't know of a single astronomer in the world who would give this claim any significance whatsoever. And so if the experts are not uh, putting any significance on this, I don't think lay people should either. In other words, this is the kind of thing to astronomy that Jesus' mythicism is to history. Correct. And so what more people should have been doing is doing just what I did, saying, hey, you know what, I think this is nonsense, but I'm going to email someone who knows astronomy and say, hey, what can you tell me about this? Well, I think there's something theologically amiss with this, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus told us that he would return when the followers of uh, Jesus Christ have, quote, fulfilled the Great Commission, Mm -hmm. taking the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ to all the people groups of the world where significant percentages Mm -hmm. of all people in those people groups would be disciples of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And... I'm encouraged by the research that's been done at the U.S. Center for World Mission, especially that by its past director, uh, Ralph Winter, where he Mm -hmm. documents that throughout the history of the church, we've been getting closer and closer to that goal, and we've been getting exponentially closer starting at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So I'm encouraged in that I see the fulfillment of the Great Commission within reach, Mm -hmm. but we have promise that these end times prophecies that are being referred to in this most recent claim about September 23rd, uh, that can't happen until we get really close to fulfilling the Great Commission. And once again, we're not there yet. Um, And I would go to Zechariah 13, Mm -hmm. actually gives us a number for what the fulfillment of the Great Commission would look like Mm -hmm. uh, for the Jewish people group. It tells us it would be one third. Mm-hmm. Jesus told us it would never be a majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, the majority will, will be stuck in their rebellion against the authority of Jesus Christ. But I think the Gospels, as well as Zechariah 13, uh, give us indication that it's not going to be a tiny minority, mm-hmm. it's going to be a big minority. Mm-hmm. Something of the order of, say, 25 to 40 percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, We're clearly not there yet, uh, but I do agree with Ralph Winter that evangelical Christians today have the financial resources, uh, the people, and the technology to fulfill the Great Commission in five years or less. Mm -hmm. All they lack is a motivation. Uh, But again, as uh, one who's been the president of Reasons to Believe for the last 32 years, I see a lot of uh, lack of motivation. I see a lot of Christians who are basically giving no effort at all uh, to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. And so my ministry is saying the physics of the universe tells us that the universe has a purpose. And the mm-hmm. purpose of the universe is to provide a home for human beings where we can fulfill the mission that God has given us. Mm-hmm. And so I'm challenging Christians. We need to understand what our the general mission of the church is 
but also what is our individual specific role within that general mission and what am I doing in my life to really focus on finishing the job that God has given me to do uh, during my years here on earth. Mm -hmm. You know I disagree with you on some of the eschatological points since we're coming from different persuasions, but I'm certainly not going to disagree with you on the importance of the Great Commission. I think we're all agreed on that one. That one has to be done. And I, I really find it very concerning that Christians get a whole lot more excited about something like this instead of the great truths of the church that have been handed down that are what we are supposed to go forward with, such as the resurrection of Jesus. Well, you know, my colleague Ken Samples, uh, he's an amillennialist, mm -hmm. I'm a premillennialist, mm -hmm. but we had him write a book, Mere Eschatology. Mm. Uh, basically, it says, okay, uh, whether you're a post or pre-millennial uh, in your perspective, there are basics that we can agree upon. And in my opinion, one of those foundational basics is if we focus our attention on fulfilling the Great Commission, mm -hmm. that will resolve the eschatological debate. Right. It will resolve it a whole lot faster than <laughs> trying to debate all these different issues with one another uh, in the church. You can resolve every debate. <laughs> yeah. Stop arguing, stop debating, roll up your sleeves and get busy. Mm -hmm. you know, my other theological concern this kind of thing is even if I come from a premillennial perspective and interpret, say, we are that discourse in that light, that I have to say what one of my friends on my Facebook post about this, what part of no one knows the day or the hour, not even the son, but the father, do these kinds of Christians not understand? Right. I mean, if you go, I mean, that's one thing I did and I taught in the book of Revelation is I took the class through the entire Bible and said, Okay, God's prophets, how accurately did they know the fulfillment of a future prophecy? Mm -hmm. And what you discover is, at best, plus or minus one week. That's mm -hmm. the closest they ever got. And what's really revealing, they didn't get that close until the event was within a month or two of happening. Mm -hmm. uh, when it's years off, uh, you know, they know the timing, maybe to plus or minus a decade. Mm -hmm. And so... And from my perspective, that's roughly, I think, what we're dealing with with the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. Look at the work by the U.S. Center of World Mission and saying, you know, if we can focus on motivating people within the evangelical community to join us in bringing unchurched people to faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to fulfill the Great Commission easily within a few decades. Mm -hmm. And if we can really mobilize the numbers we can get it done in a decade or two. And it's like, hey, let's, in terms of our eschatology, let's focus a little more effort mm -hmm. on what our future home is going to be like. Because it was the Apostle Paul and the author of the book of Hebrews that said, every day, spend some time meditating on your future hope. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, it's going to be like, what am I doing here on planet Earth? There's a much better place for me. And the faster we fulfill the Great Commission, the sooner we get to leave this planet and this universe and enter the new creation. And given what the Bible says about life in the new creation, I can't wait to get there. And I think that should provide us with plenty of motivation.
I'd like to remind everyone at this point that uh, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. Everything we do here is listener-supported by people like you. I encourage you to go to deeperwatersapologetics.com, and on the side, there's a link that says Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And you click on that link, the link within that area there, and it takes you to Risen Jesus Ministries. Now, you've gone to the right place. That's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you make your donation there to Risen Jesus. But then you get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike or Debbie and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They will make sure we get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy ebooks that I have either written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or ebooks I have co-written, like Defying Inerrancy, or Groundless, or God and Natural Disasters. And then, finally, uh, another way you can contribute, guys, is um, if you've uh, been paying attention to my Facebook, you know that Ari and I have our 7th anniversary coming up on July 24th. Seven years, and she hasn't killed me yet, though I understand she's come awfully close a few times. And uh, I can't buy it so much for my wife because she's got an allergy to knicker, but a lot of women do like jewelry. So if that special woman in your life does really like jewelry and you want to do something special for her, maybe an anniversary or something like that of yourself coming up, or heck, maybe you're a guy getting ready to pop for question you want a good dream. Well, go to the website there to help support work of Deeper Waters Ministries for Jewelry. There on the, le- on the side, just scroll down and see it. And it takes you to Premier Jewelry, where my friend Lena Clester handles that. And you buy something for the lady in your life. Whatever you buy, 25% of that goes to Deeper Waters. So guys, you can buy something for that special lady in your life to make up for that big screw-up that you recently did. Or you can buy something to make up for that screw-up that I know you're going to make in the future. And anyway, guys, get in touch with me. Let me know what you like about the show. And please go on iTunes and leave a positive review. I love to see them. It's how I know that you guys like the show and what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to see changed and such. Now, Dr. Ross, do you have an organization that you'd like to see people donate to? Yeah, that's Reasons to Believe, and our website's reasons.org, and if uh, people want to support us, I mean, we are supported entirely uh, by people who like what we do, and uh, they can donate directly at reasons.org. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were talking about motivation, something that stuck with me is that when we lived in Knoxville, Ari and I attended a church while with a small group Bible study as a couple, and I remember a lady in the study one evening just said so distinctly and I was thinking this is what is wrong with our country with our Christianity today here and that's right she said well you know what I'm saved my children are saved so we're saved so you're going to sit back and wait for Jesus to come and I'm thinking yeah and first off if that's your attitude what's going to happen if your children go off to college and they're no longer saved if they get indoctrinated by an atheist professor and second what about the rest of the world? What about other people's children? Do they not matter? Well, it's making a good point, is that we're not to wait for the return of the Lord. The Lord is waiting for us to complete the task. Mm-hmm. 
And he promised he would come back to planet Earth the moment that uh, we finish the task he left us to perform. Mm-hmm. It's up to us. I mean, uh, and again, I think that settles a lot of that eschatological debate that goes on. Mm-hmm. Say, you know, uh, if we can uh, move forward to fulfill the Great Commission, we're all going to understand what is the correct interpretation of end times prophecy. Mm-hmm. And we understand a lot faster than if we try to settle it uh, with these uh, intellectual debates. Mm-hmm. And does it bother you also, because, I mean, if you take this kind of interpretation, Revelation does say 12 stars, and you've said that it's really more like nine stars and three planets, which, from our perspective, they look like stars if we look up at the sky. I mean, does it bother you that even to reach this point, you have to fudge the data a little bit? Yeah, also, they're basically talking about nine stars in Leo, or which nine stars are you going to pick? Mm-hmm. The constellation Leo's got a lot of stars in it. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they find nine in uh, Leo's, that doesn't impress me uh, much at all. Mm-hmm. And again, what magnitude limit? If you're going to yeah. go to seventh or 7.5 magnitude instead of the normal six, uh, you're basically increasing the number of stars uh, by a factor of uh, 20 times. Now you've got lots of stars to look at. And actually, there's uh, some strong uh, reason why you might want to go there, because Abraham could see a lot more stars in the sky than we can see today. Mm -hmm. Um, And what are you going to do about the people that live, say, in Shanghai and Beijing? When they look up at the night sky on a clear night with no moon, they still can't see a single star in the sky. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, where I live in the Los Angeles basin, we do well to see a hundred stars in the sky. Mm-hmm. Most of we can't see that many. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a paper published in Science that says more than half the world's population today has never seen the Milky Way. Mm. So uh, when uh, God told Abraham, look up at the sky and see all the stars, your descendants will be more numerous than all those stars. Well, I think he had the capacity to see about 20,000 stars. Mm. Whereas even in a really dark spot on Earth today, you're stretching to see maybe six or 7,000 stars. Mm-hmm. And if you're living in a city, uh, the number's down to less than 100. So, uh, you know, how are you going to see all these stars and Leo lining up? Well, it all depends what limit you pick. And again, that just shows you how you can easily play with the numbers to make them say anything you want. Now, when you were t- talking about the magnitude and such, I mean, if we go out at night and we look at, say, the Big Dipper or something like that, it looks like there's just star one, star two, star three, and honest to however many stars there are. But what you're telling us really is that it's not one star you're seeing. You could be seeing a whole cluster of stars, like a whole galaxy, but it looks like just one star at that point, right? Well... The stars that make it the Big Dipper, they're mm-hmm. bright stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, most places in the world, you can see all those bright stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're in a really dark site, you're going to see a whole lot more than just the stars that make it the Big Dipper. Mm-hmm. You're going to be able to see stars inside the Dipper. You're going to be able to see stars on both sides of the handle mm-hmm. at sites like that. And so if that's your perspective on Leo and Virgo, you've got a lot of stars to work with. And the more stars you got to work with, the easier it is to make it say what you want it to say. So if we were able to hypothetically get into some spaceship and go up to Leo, we would not see the few stars that we see from Earth here, would we? 
Well, I mean, to give you an idea, you can take out a good pair of binoculars and mm-hmm. look at Leo. Mm-hmm. You're probably seeing Leo the way that Abraham saw it without binoculars. Mm. And with those pair of binoculars, you're going to see hundreds of stars in Leo. Mm-hmm. So it basically then becomes at that point, oh, a hundred stars. Like here's nine of them that are just the way that we want them to be. And that's really not much of a shock then at that point, is it? It isn't. And, you know, they talked about them being in a line. Well, if you actually look at the nine stars they're talking about, it's very crudely aligned. It's not a straight line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it basically goes in a direction. Mm-hmm. And, again, I can remember, uh, you know, 40 years ago, there was a famous astronomer who was claiming that he was seeing stars that were perfect circles. Mm. You know, you got, say, a dozen stars uh, that – actually line up in such a way that they transcribe what looks like an almost perfect circle. Mm -hmm. He was claiming that was evidence that there was a supernova eruption in the center of that circle, and it blew out those stars equally so that they're in a a circular pattern. Well, that went away when a couple of graduate students says, well, let's just kind of look at all the stars that we see in the, the celestial sphere and how many would, by pure accident, would orient themselves as perfect circles like this astronomer was claiming mm-hmm. and the number they came up with was actually bigger than the number he discovered. And so he realized, hey, there's nothing statistically significant about the claim that these stars are in a circular pattern. With all the stars in the sky, you're going to get that happening simply by random chance. Mm-hmm. Likewise, I look at this claim about these stars in Leo and saying, I don't see any statistical significance that exceeds random chance. Mm-hmm. You know, I often tell Christians something along these lines where I say, you know, when it comes to science, I'm not an expert on science. I will go to my opponents and say, you know what, whatever you want scientifically, I'll just grant it to you for the sake of argument and just go with it. If you want evolution, for instance, I'll go with it just for the sake of argument. Because I can't argue. If you want me to argue against evolution scientifically or for it, I couldn't, so I try to stay out of it. And I, I think it that's kind of a good idea for a lot of Christians to fall, because I tell you, like, if you want to argue against this, make it a scientific case, because when we speak on these areas and we don't know what we're talking about, too many times it does embarrass us, and especially in the eyes of a scientific community, doesn't it? That's correct, and what I tell lay people, look, if you're not an expert, go talk to an expert. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is that most scientists are uh, quite open to the public coming to them and helping them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there's a number of uh, top scientists that actually maintain uh, websites where basically they just answer lay people's questions about their specialty. Mm-hmm. So uh, these scientists are more approachable than you might think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I talk about your friendly neighborhood scientists, virtually every neighborhood in the United States has got a PhD scientist in it. Mm-hmm. And not an expert, they can tell you where to find an expert uh, on the question that you're talking about. And of course, they can also always do what I did and email reasons to believe, can't they? They can do that, or they can, I mean, for example, I'm able to answer every question I get on Facebook and Twitter. I mean, it might come a time when I can't keep up with it, but right now I'm able to do that. Mm. So we have people, and that's what's happened with this particular controversy. 
I probably had over half a dozen people ask me about this specific claim of September 23rd and uh, right. basically make the point, hey, um, <clears throat> all we need to do is uh, look at what the Bible says about events that must take place before this can happen. That by itself is enough to rule out the claim. Mm -hmm. And I think that works well with Christians. Take them to the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I also get concerned because <clears throat> I was very impressed when the whole Harold Camping thing was going on a few years ago. And when the Blood Moons was going on, definitely part of that. And every time this happens... It's like Christianity gets egg on its face. Even though I have zero support for it, you can be sure the media loves to pick up on Christians making sensational claims only to be proven wrong. And I, I just sit back and wonder, guys, how many times do you have to be proven absolutely wrong before you realize you need to stop doing this? Well, it's what I tell Jehovah's Witnesses that knock on my door. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've been predicting that Armageddon is just around the corner, and uh, you've been wrong over 20 times. But hey, if you keep predicting it, you'll eventually be right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I actually had my ministry partner make a video. It was my suggestion. He liked it. Some up the calendar at the end of a world. Tom, where you have all these false predictions that have been made about when the world's going to come to the end, and it switches to some angels up in heaven, and saying. Ah, oh, come on, we got to reschedule this whole thing again? Well, one thing we can be certain about, we're closer to the return of Christ today than we were yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, again, though, I think you and I would definitely agree that even if you want to come from a pre-trib perspective, it's really not doing the Christian church any favors to be setting dates, is it? It's not. Um, but again, I would argue we could probably get a really crude date mm -hmm. based on how close we are to the fulfilling of the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. And again, from a premillennial perspective, I think Ezekiel uh, gives us some uh, caution. Mm -hmm. uh, if you take the position that uh, the Bible really does predict a second rebirth of the nation of Israel, mm -hmm. well, look mm -hmm. at everything it says about what has to happen in that nation uh, before the end times can begin to tick. Mm -hmm. And those events, uh, from that perspective, uh, many of them have happened, but there's a whole lot that haven't. You said that we need to just have some more motivation, because you've got the means, you've got the resources, we just don't have the motivation. Why is it you think we don't have the motivation, and what can be done to change it? Well, I remember talking to Ralph Winter about this, and he made the point, look, if evangelicals would simply dedicate 1% of their income mm -hmm. uh, to ministries that are dedicated to missions and evangelism, the Great Commission would be fulfilled in less than 10 years. And says, we just need people to step up to that 1%. But my counter to Ralph was, well, I know people that are really committed to fulfilling the Great Commission. And in addition to the tithe they give to their church, they're giving between 3 and 5% of their income on average. Uh, to these kinds of organizations. Challenging, because his point was, if you actually look at what Christians are giving, it's 0.1%. It mm -hmm. takes 1% to get the job done, but they're only giving 0.1%. He says, we need, to, and we need to motivate them to give 10 times as much. 
I says, well, how are you going to motivate those Christians that are giving at a level of 3 to 5% to go up to 30 to 50%? That's not realistic. Mm-hmm. But what I was pointing out is a vast majority of evangelical Christians don't give 1%, don't give a tenth of a percent. They give nothing, mm-hmm. zero. Uh, they give to their church, and that's it. And uh, it would be great if the church actually was the church that the New Testament speaks about, where they basically do the job that all the nonprofits and the Christian community are doing. But that's not how it works today in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And so we need to find some way to motivate evangelicals who are giving nothing to give at least something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to pat uh, those Christians on the back that are giving 3 to 5% and saying, that's really sacrificial in your part. Keep it up. I'm not going to try to challenge them to give 10 times as much. Mm-hmm. I want to go after the people that are giving nothing. We also had someone on the show back in January, we talked about abortion. He said, you know, if every church agreed to adopt one child every season of a year, there would be no no cases of abortion taking place. Right. But again, I would argue the majority of churches probably aren't adopting any. Yep. And I, I think a lot of it is sadly because we are so me-centered over here that Christianity is all about us, what happens to us, our experiences, and then when it comes to this kind of end time thing, it's about this is talking about my well-being, for God to get me away from this situation that I don't like, so that I don't have to face any suffering. And you think I'm totally off base with that? or? Well, I'm writing a book right now. It's almost finished. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically saying, always be ready. And it's mm-hmm. focusing on being ready to give good reasons for the hope you have in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. be able to deliver them with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. Mm-hmm. And that, that if you do that, you're going to see God supernaturally bringing people to you that are prepared, that are prepared to respond to your good reasons. Mm-hmm. You have those experiences, it's really very fulfilling and very joyful. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I know a lot of Christians who've never had that experience before. They're missing out on that joy, that fun. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking at this book as a way to recruit people to really get personally involved and bringing unchurched adults to faith in Jesus Christ and just see the miracles God will do in your life as you commit yourself to do that. As I've told the leaders in our church, if we can make that happen, those people are going to start donating money uh, to Christian causes. Mm -hmm. It will happen because of just how excited they are about what the Holy Spirit is doing in their lives. Mm -hmm. Rather than pressuring them to give money, let's get them involved in fulfilling the Great Commission. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we'll be able to interview you on that book sometime here. Yeah, it'll be out sometime next year. If you had someone here right now, and hypothetically you could, someone just listening out in podcast land and such, who was really, let's say at this point, just sold on this September 23rd thing, what would you tell them? I would tell them, uh, number one, I'd try to find out if they're a believer. Mm Mm-hmm. Pretty are a Christian, <clears throat> I would tell them, go to your Bible. Mm-hmm. Don't just read Revelation. Read Ezekiel. Uh, read uh, Jeremiah. In fact, I'll say, I'll give you a scripture list. Mm-hmm. In, and you know, look at these scriptures and see if that doesn't persuade you that it can't be this early. It's going to be later. 
Mm-hmm. And what can I do to get involved to make it happen sooner? I mean, I'm all excited about hastening the return of the Lord. Mm-hmm. I think that should be our objective. Uh, but if people have a respect for the Bible, the Bible simply doesn't support the claims that are being made mm-hmm. by these September 23rd individuals. Mm-hmm. And what would you say to the skeptic out there who thinks that this represents what Christianity is like? Well, I would let them know that Christianity is quite different than the other religions and that it allows freedom for debate and division. And people say, look at all the denominations in Christendom. That's actually a sign of great health. Uh, We're in Christianity. We unite on the essentials, but we allow a lot of freedom on the Mm -hmm. non-essentials. You know, this is a non-essential, the Christian faith. So I would tell a skeptic and unbeliever, uh, this is simply a sign of the health of the Christian community that we're able to tolerate these divisions and still have fellowship with one another. Mm-hmm. And there's proof of that in our own reasons to believe staff. You know, Ken Samples is a, a millennialist. Uh, I'm a pre-millennialist, and yet we get along just fine. Uh, we're brothers in Christ. Uh, we really are excited to fellowship with one another. Our differences in eschatology are in the realm of the non-essentials of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. There's proof of that in this podcast right now, because you're a pre-millennial futurist, I'm an orthodox preterist, and we're getting along just fine. Well, you know what I say to preterists? Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you that all those uh, prophecies and all of the discourse were fulfilled in the first century. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why can't they be fulfilled twice? Uh, mm-hmm. The Bible is filled with prophecies uh, that look like it's just for one event, but they are in fact for two events. Mm-hmm. Good example of that being what Isaiah said about the virgin that would be with child. He was speaking about two different virgins and two different children. And so, but but the power of that is the fact that his short-term prediction was fulfilled gave people confidence that the prediction about the future Messiah likewise would be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And I see that as a pattern in Old Testament prophecy. God would endow the prophets uh, with short-term predictions that were fulfilled within a few years, but also gave them uh, long-term predictions that were centuries away. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they were always right on the short-term predictions gave people confidence they're also going to be right on the long-term predictions. So in that sense, uh, maybe there's a pathway whereby preterists and non-preterists can actually resolve their differences. I don't think it's that difficult. Well, it'd be fascinating to have that discussion, but unfortunately, we are nearing the end of this show. So, um, Dr. Ross, do you have a, a blog or website where people can get in touch with you if you want to find out more? Yeah, it's reasons.org. Mm-hmm. And do you have uh, any final words you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience today? Well, keep studying. I mean, whenever issues like this come up, uh, God gave us two books, the Book of Nature and the Book of Scripture. And these kinds of controversies are often quickly resolved simply by looking at everything that you see in the 66 books that make up the Bible. And likewise, when it comes to controversies about the book of nature, mm-hmm. integrate across all the different scientific disciplines. And that's why we existed reasons to believe, to help scholars and non-scholars alike integrate across the breadth of the revelations that God has given us. And if people got questions, again, uh, I take questions on both my uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook pages. 
Yeah, Dr. Ross, it's been great to have you back on the show again. Always a pleasure, and we look forward to having you back here again sometime. That'll be my pleasure. Thank you. I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Sam Andretis on talking about his book, Engendered. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>